0: Let us pray. God, we are grateful to you for the many ways in which you make yourself known to us. And so make yourself known in this hour and make yourself known in the week that is before us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight, for you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A few months ago, I became a parent for the first time. I'm a stepfather to a four-year-old and a three-year-old, and I did not have to get married and have children to know that parents are busy. Everybody knows that. I'm not at all surprised to find myself in a hurry much more often than I was before. The surprise has been the opposite. My need to learn to slow down. Learning to accept and embrace the slower pace of things is essential for me. It is the key to my experiencing time with the boys as a joy rather than as a frustration. If I can resist being in a hurry, I really enjoy watching how long it takes the boys to come down the stairs in the morning. I really love playing tag with the boys at the park or just standing there and watching them make themselves dizzy as they spin around. And so I have to resist the temptation to ruin it by pulling my cell phone out of my pocket and checking my email when I have an extra five minutes. Increasingly, I just leave my phone at home. At bedtime, I have to resist wondering how long it will take the little boy next to me to fall asleep. Because if I do, laying there in bed, I get an opportunity that all adults crave. I get to just sit there and calm myself and listen to the slowing beating of my heart at the end of the day. And the sound of my breath and the breath of the little boy next to me. And I get a chance to give God thanks for the blessings of the day. If I don't do these kinds of things slowly enough, I miss out on the whole thing. And I become much more frustrated about how long everything takes and much more worried about how I'm going to get it all done. Even though much of what I am trying to get done is not anywhere close to as important as the thing that I'm doing. I can already tell that for me, being a parent isn't going to be about getting more done. It's going to be about slowing down and learning to enjoy ordinary things. I know that slowing down and finding joy in ordinary things is a challenge for all kinds of people, not just parents. I hear folks say it to me all the time. It's a problem for busy professionals who have lost a sense of meaning and purpose in their work. And for older people whose minds are still active even as their bodies are slowing down. And for busy people who are overwhelmed with the responsibility of caring for a loved one? Really for any of us searching for more meaning and purpose in our everyday life? The story we heard today is about two people who have an experience of God because they notice something very ordinary. It's just a couple of days after the death of Jesus, and these two disciples are on the road, walking to a place called Emmaus. Already they must be heading home, getting back to work and to their regular lives. At least they're still talking about Jesus and thinking about him, such that when a third man walking along the road falls into step with them and asks them what they're talking about, they say that they're talking about Jesus grieving his death on the cross and they cannot believe this man who has joined them has not heard about these things but it turns out that he has This man they meet along the road begins to add his own stories about Jesus. He quotes the Old Testament as he recalls prophecies about the Messiah. And he reassures these two grieving disciples that everything is happening just the way it is supposed to. This man who has joined the two disciples as they walk along the road, it turns out to be Jesus and we as the readers cannot believe that these disciples were so hurried and distracted with what they were doing that they did not even recognize him until later the disciples urged their new friend to join them for dinner and to stay the night and it is not his scintillating conversation it's not his theological wisdom or even his remarkably jesus-like appearance that indicates to these two disciples that this is Jesus. No, it says that when he breaks bread and hands it to them, it is then that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. He was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is how faith often works. We miss God in what would seem to be the most expected signs, preaching and church attendance, reading books on religion or praying the Lord's Prayer. These would seem to be good ways of coming to know God, and often they are. But many times we come to a greater awareness of God through the ordinary things, common things, Unexpected things that slow us down and show us the sacredness of life. Theologians have a word for these means of discovering God. They call it revelation. Revelation, says theologian John Leith, is the clue that enables one to put together the disparate experiences of life into a meaningful, coherent whole. To see a pattern and purpose in human history. To overcome the incongruities between life as it is and as it ought to be. Revelation, the way this, that we discover God, these are the things that help life to have meaning. Revelation is a way of paying attention to your life. People who understand Revelation experience the pace of parenting as a joy rather than a frustration. People who experience Revelation know that emails and meetings and errands and sales calls are chances to share a little more kindness and grace with someone else. Revelation makes the sunrise a sign of God's wisdom, but also cold winter winds and dirt and insects. Barbara Brown Taylor is a preacher. She says when we pay attention to these things, they become altars in this world. Altars in this world. And she says that just about anything can be a source of finding God. In fact, one of her favorite examples is the mail order catalog. First, she says, there are the people who produced the catalog, the designers, the photographers, the models, and the copy editors, along with the people who produced the goods inside. Some of those people live in Mexico and others in the Philippines. If you could lay a laminated map of the world on the floor and put a pin in every place that something in that mail-order catalog came from, you might be amazed at how prickly the map became. All of this if you slow down and think about how many lives are touched in the pages of a catalog. She also notes that In China, where cashmere goats are bred to produce sweaters for those catalogs, traditional grasslands are so overgrazed that thousands of square miles turn to desert each year. And she notes, then there is the paper. Pine is the cheapest, most renewable source of pulpwood for paper. I use paper, she says, and I know that it has to come from somewhere. I just hate thinking that a whole forest came down for one run of a mail-order catalog, especially since I saw so many copies of that catalog in the trash can at the post office. Some people don't like hearing these kinds of examples. Often we would rather just enjoy a sweater we ordered, a book full of paper, a hot shower, a nice dinner, without feeling guilty about the resources consumed in the process. Didn't God put at least some of these resources on the earth for us to enjoy? Well, sure that's true. I think what she's saying is not, for instance, that you must never eat a steak, It's about appreciating where it came from. The point is that when you eat a steak, slow down and consider the amount of water and fossil fuels and people, and not to mention a no longer living animal that contributed to the meal. Because when you do so, it's hard not to have a greater sense of reverence for the amazing good fortune you have, And the connectedness of it all? All too often, we just mindlessly consume our dinner, griping about why the service or the company isn't a little better as we wait for the check to come. And then we marvel that Jeff Ruby can charge $75 for this. A little dose of reverence can help us appreciate our good fortune. You may have trouble making peace with the $75 thing, but at least you'll know that you are blessed. I wouldn't spend so much time on this thing, reverence, these revelations about the sacredness of common things, except that thinking about these things has a healing effect in our lives. It gives some meaning and coherence to the meals we eat, the errands we run, the work and the personal tasks we accomplish in the course of a day. They become not just things to get done, but instead opportunities for grace. That may sound esoteric or theoretical, but there's a very practical element to it, one you can apply every day. People who are busy or overwhelmed with one or more choices in their life often find themselves dreaming about what life would be like if they did something different. So they try harder and harder to figure out if it's their relationship or their job or some other commitment they need to change in order to get it right. And many folks make wasteful mistakes in chasing those dreams. And then they beat themselves up when they do something in a different way and are disappointed to find out that things don't change much. The same frustrations are still there. I made a comment a little earlier about how those two disciples on the road were already getting back to their regular lives And that comment may have sounded like those disciples should have been doing something else. But the fact is, they were right where they were supposed to be. God intended to become known to them in the breaking of the bread. Part of the lesson before us today isn't that God wants us to be doing something else, but that God may want to be found in what you are already doing. God blesses the life that you have and wants you to be able to receive that blessing. One way of describing this is found in the words of a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was the, a pastor in Germany during the 1930s who led a small community of Christians And he wrote about their experiences in a book called Life Together. One of his insights was about the danger of dreams. You know, there are plenty of good things to be said about dreaming. Having a goal to chase and a vision for the future. Hope in what could be. And at the same time, said Bonhoeffer, as he watched his friends trying to live together, he said, there is nothing more dangerous to authentic community than our dreams for it. Because we love those dreams more than the people around us. If you want to love your life, You can't spend all your emotional energy longing for it to be different. You have to love the life you have. Because that's how you find God in things as common as the breaking of bread. It's often suggested that revelations of God the experiences that give life meaning and coherence, that these things are supposed to be otherworldly and extraordinary. But that's like dreaming for something other than what most of us will ever have. What most of us have is a regular life, full of regular chances for work and play and frustration and joy. And your life is a life God wishes to bless. A life that God hopes for you to love. And we know this because God can be known in regular things a trip to the playground, a phone call to a friend, a day at the office the breaking Mm. of bread.